podcast that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petra Speich, and this week we are doing part two of three on John Walsh, an anti-crime activist and the most prolific manhunter in America, proving that television can be used against criminals who think they have assimilated in modern-day society by creating the television program America's Most Wanted. Criticisms by criminals would state that, that being segmented on the television show and having actors portray the crimes they were accused of would not allow them a fair trial because of the national negative publicity. Despite this outcry, the effectiveness of the show would be enduring in capturing those who eluded authorities. At this stage, John Walsh and his wife, Revae, would channel their grief into changing the way America treated missing children and in the process keep the legacy of their murdered son, Adam, alive. All the years that I did America's Most Wanted, we turned down between 200 and 250 cases every week. Caught 17 guys off the FBI's 10 Most Wanted, so the FBI wanted only us to do FBI cases. The Marshals have a 15 Most Wanted. I made the, the meeting that most of the police agencies in the United States are less than 10 men or women, 70% of them. I said, I'm going to do... I'm going to do small town cases. They don't have the detectives to go. So we had the criteria. Can we catch this guy? Is he possible to catch? We got to get two or three missing children. We're going to do two missing children. Cal will be in charge of that. And what is the goal of each episode? It's to catch whoever we can catch. It's to get the public. We look at him. We say, this guy catchable. Where do you think, John? I think he's in Mexico. I think this guy might have gone to Canada. The hardest thing is to turn these people down. Callahan always says it. I watched my parents heartbroken for 27 years. It took me 27 years to get those damn Hollywood police. A brand new young chief gave me the files because Adam's case was bungled so badly. And when I got those files after 27 years, I had a retired homicide detective, Joe Matthews, pro bono, and a retired prosecutor who never lost a death penalty case, Kelly Hancock, pro bono, solved Adam's case in one month. The Hollywood police kept those files closed because they missed so many pieces of, and made Cazada's tool, Adam's murder, was in the radar in 1984, and they had to cut him loose because they lost the bloody carpet in his car where he decapitated Adam. It was a nightmare. So, so Cal knows and I know what it's like, you know, to wait for that justice. So... The telling these people I can't do it is horrible because they'll go, John, you're the court of last resort. You're the guy who catches the impossible catches, and we need you to do this. And I say, I can't. I can't. I'm so overwhelmed. And joining me this week, Brandon Guchon and Jocelyn Sharp. By 1984, after successfully changing laws against how missing and exploited children cases were looked at in America, the Walshes would get Congress to pass the Missing Children's Assistance Act. This act would fund a national resource center in America for missing and exploited children and create a database. It would also create a national toll-free hotline for victims of parents and the victims, and that hotline was 1-800-THE-LOST. I couldn't work. I couldn't function. The power company sets off, shuts off your power. They repossess your car or your mortgage. You have to get up every day for those other kids. You have to do it for your partner. Mm. You can't blame yourself. Even if they caught the perp, you still will always be the parent of a murder child. My wife explains it this way, which is great, and Callahan grew up hearing that. It's a color that I hope you never see. Mm. And it's a wound that will heal over, but it'll get open and cracked open, but you won't bleed to death. You'll bleed the rest of your life. So you accept that fact that you're the parent of a murdered child or someone you love, but you've got to do everything you can to take care of yourself because you owe it to the rest of the family to be the guy or the mom, to saddle up, put your pants on, go to work, honor that child. Callahan always talks about how we celebrated Adam's birthday. That's a brother he never met. I've had two sons and a daughter. I've got three grandchildren. We celebrated Adam. We didn't. We talked about him. We had his pictures everywhere. We loved that little boy so much that we didn't dwell on that one horrible day of his life. We dwelt on the fact that I was blessed. He was my first child. Made me a better man. Mm -hmm. Made me a made me a father. The funding would primarily come from the Justice Department, but the center would compile information on all missing and exploited children for parents, schools, law enforcement agencies, 
and private investigators. And I'll tell you what, I don't know what the hell happened to the fathers in this country. And it crosses all economic boundaries, race, creed, and color. They just disappear. There's boys walking around this country, dazed and confused, don't know how to tie a tie, how to shine their shoes, don't know what to do. They're lucky if they go to a boys and girls club. I raise money for boys and girls clubs too and the National Center. Mm -hmm. But what happened to these fathers that said, I'm gonna hold you accountable. You're not gonna run off with MS-13, sell drugs. You're not gonna hang on the corner with the Crips or Bloods or the Mexican Mafia. I'm going to hold you accountable. You're going to do your homework, and I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to sit there. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to sit there with you. Yeah. I'm going to help you get through this, and I'm going to teach you how to be a good man or how to be a good woman. Yes. And that's, how, that's disappeared in this country. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened to it. The spokesperson for the center would be popular toy Teddy Ruxpin, and he would be the official spokesbear of the center. During the animated series, based on the toy, there would be clips used as public service announcements called Protect Yourself. And, and it, it, it's not an excuse if you don't have a good dad or your dad wasn't in it. You can break that chain. We have people that work at the National Center that were molested and abused, but they aren't, they're not abusers. They're not out molesting anybody. Mm -hmm. They're breaking the chain. So if you came from a not-so-great family, why don't you settle up and be a good father? Why don't you settle up and be a good man and make a difference? It's not that hard. It's just loving somebody. It's just caring for them and doing the right thing. So, you know, I, I talk to parents all the time. There's no magic formula. Mm -hmm. There's no therapy is good. Parents of murdered children are great. You sit there and talk to other parents because unless you walk in those shoes, you don't know. Right. You have no idea. The center would put a spotlight and raise public awareness about ways to prevent child abduction, child sex abuse, and child pornography, something the general public was not educated on or mainstream law enforcement agencies focused on until this act was passed. What are some of the most innovative changes you've seen in criminology in recent years? Well, on, on the side of the exploitation of children, of course, it took me three years, but we have the Amber Alert now. Got that passed, and why it took three years, no one understands. I must I yeah. had to testify 15 times. The first year it was passed, we saved 117 kids because those pictures went on to your smartphones, etc. Why do you think this research center was not created prior to the Walshes and their tragedy of what happened to their family? Obviously, there needed to be somebody to kick this into motion. Um, at this point, you know, again, this is maybe, what, 30, 40 years, 50 years of television. They were still learning how to use this tool. And nothing's going to get the point across to children that there's bad guys out there than a cartoon. So when you put a toy out there, and a, and a talking toy at that, I mean, for those of you that don't remember Teddy Ruxpin, it would be this bear, you'd get a cassette tape, you put it in Teddy Ruxpin, and then he would speak. He would be reading stories to you and stuff like that. They ended up making it into a cartoon. And th those messages stick with you. I can tell you right now, like G.I. Joe, growing up with G.I. Joe, you know, now you know and knowing's half the battle. Well, I learned a lot of those lessons just by watching that. There's something about a cartoon speaking directly to a child that will leave that impression permanently. I'm Teddy Ruxpin and the official spokesbearer for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now meet a friend of mine with some good advice. Thanks, Teddy. I have a friend who wanted to run away, so I told him that it's dangerous for a kid to be out on his own. He could have nowhere to sleep or end up in a scary place. I said to talk to someone he trusts for help. Well, cartoons are how you communicate with children. It's the thing that's, you know, the real world isn't real to kids you know, death and, and mortality in life. That's not real to children. Uh, reality is a concept we only start to learn when we start to experience tragedy and sadness. You know, most children are fortunate enough that they don't have to experience those things when they're young. And to them, you know, everything's imaginary. So a cartoon is a much more related... That's the thing that they go to to learn about everything. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they the furthest... The further you get away from reality is if there's a lesson there, you could still grab onto it. But again, to answer Pete's question, they, they were just figuring at this point, they were still figuring out how powerful of a tool the television was. I think the murder, though, of Adam Walsh was so brutal and so. Well, that's what I'm getting at. It's like you had to have something that grabbed headlines. It's the same thing with Emmett Till, where it's like when his mom put that picture of her son out there in the newspaper, it shook the nation. This is very similar to yeah. that. You had to have an ex an insanely 
sad tragedy take place for people to go uh, take notice exactly like oh wait a minute like th this this could happen to me how do we prevent it i'm teddy ruxpin and the official smokes bear for the national center for missing and exploited children now meet a friend of mine with some good advice thanks teddy your parents have probably taught you to be polite to grown-ups but it's important for you to know that if anybody asks you to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable you have the right to say no even to a friend or relative Protect yourself. I'm Teddy Ruxpin, and the official spokesbear for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now meet a friend of mine with some good advice. Thanks, Teddy. Mama promised to make a record of me. No, not as a singer, but personal records. A recent photo, medical records, even fingerprints. That way, if I'm lost, those records will help find me. And, and by using Teddy Ruxman, like you guys just said, it softens the blow of reality. What it does is that it tells a kid to be like, be nervous if you're in this situation. Protect yourself. Because six, five, four, three-year-olds, they're just like, everybody's good. They have no clue. But then that subconscious level of, of getting into their head and be like, no, 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 not everybody's good. That has to be, you have to, like I said, soften the blow. It has to be a slow build to realize that like, oh, wow, not everybody likes me. And that's the thing, just is if that blow is too hard, then you're going to leave damage. Mm -hmm. You know, now all of a sudden they're afraid of everybody. You don't want them going through society afraid of everybody because then that can create just as big a problems as not being afraid of anybody. Well, uh, I don't know if I'm done accomplishing I, I uh, but it's a path that I never ever dreamed that I'd be on so I think the challenges were were the were the start of this journey and 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 what I have accomplished was just dealing with Adam's murder that that was the toughest that was the biggest and toughest challenge was my only son being kidnapped and brutally murdered decapitated and that first challenge was just to keep from dying of a broken heart, to, to, to slipping under the water. The center would start to put posters and images of missing Jane and John Doe's and would have composite sketches of what they may have looked like today or at the time of their death. This was something that we did not do prior to John Walsh starting this center. Many would be identified the Jane and John Doe's, and the families would get closure in some way. The effective tools used would get many answers to the fate of their loved ones, something that would not be a priority of law enforcement before. Culture of child abductions and sexual predators in America changed dramatically. Parents would be more and more vigilant, and law enforcement would also handle cases with the same timeline of a murder or homicide investigation. And two things, if there are other siblings in the family, you gotta focus on those siblings because they're dying of a brokered heart and when they see dad or mom crying over the loss of a child, they, they shovel it in. And then when you see them later on, 14, 13 years old, and they're starting to have problems in school, it was because they didn't want to make it worse for mom or dad. Mom and dad were ha dying of broken hearts, but nobody came to them and got them counseling or talked to them. You stand there and you say, look, little sister or little brother, we're not going anywhere. We love you. This is a horrible thing. We'll get through this together. That's how we did. I said, lucky stayed with, stayed with the wife. And... Uh, lots of times, and I say people don't have to do this. Number one, people with suicide children, it's not your fault. It's not, you had nothing to do with it. You can mm -hmm. go to sleep every day and say, if I'd have done something different, if I'd have been about, no, that was the card that was dealt to you that day. So the tough thing is to stay together, to keep the family together. By 1987, a new TV station in America called Fox had pitched an idea based on the German television show called File reference XY unsolved, and the British show Crime Watch. The show would be pitched by the Fox executive Stephen Chow and executive producer Michael Linder. Linder would start to shoot the TV pilot without having a host, and they would start to search for the face of the program. The network first looked towards politicians like Rudy Giuliani and backed away because of the fear they would use the platform to get elected and have ulterior motives. Then they looked towards journalists like Bob Woodward and Linda Ellerby. 
but saw their positions as journalists possibly not connecting with the audience. Walsh also says it's a good time to warn parents about common tactics he's seen abductors use. For example, what he calls bus surfers. They will follow buses looking for what they like. They'll figure out if that kid has it goes home alone, if that kid gets off at the bus stop and has to walk half a mile or a quarter of a mile, they figure out how they're going to get that kid when they see their quarry. It's like hunting. I would imagine what you just said will horrify a number of parents, right? Because most kids go to school, come home, there's no drama at all. I've been telling parents for years that the National Center has done research for the last 10 years. The most vulnerable time for a stranger abduction is to, on the way to school, from the bus stop to school, and back at night. The bus surfers look for the individual kids that grab their fascination and that they can get the easiest from that bus stop. Would the program America's Most Wanted connect or work on the same level if a politician or journalist was behind the program? No. It wouldn't. And we're going to discuss this. I'm sure that this is what we're about to get into. But there's things about John Walsh that it's kind of crazy that he never got into TV. You know, like that 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 wasn't his goal, because there's things about him as a person, the way he speaks, the way he conducts himself, his cadence. Um, I think it's it's like a, th- a mil- millions of levels of reasons why anybody but John Walsh wouldn't have been right for this, because not only does he not have the connection to, first of all, the. Uh, unsolved mystery world and what that feels like to have, you know, an unsolved case in your life or not know where your child is. He has that, right? Then he has this other thing where he is, you know, a stand-up person, a middle-class guy. He's very relatable to everybody. He built himself up from the ground up. Like there's all these levels of reasons, but when you really think about it, like is that show that show without his voice? His voice is what I hear. When you say that show name, I start to hear his voice in my head. Thane Smica, if he's still alive, is a horrible creep dirtbag who murdered a very nice young man. He's been out there 30 years. He needs to be brought back to justice. If there's a politician or a journalist, um, just like what Pete brought up earlier, there's something to gain from doing this yeah. show. There's the, When John Walsh is talking about this and you watch him on that show, he means every word when he's talking about these bad guys that are eluding authorities. There, there is a truth to that. You're not going to get that truth from, uh, from a Rudy Giuliani who makes his living spouting bullshit to the masses just to get them to, to applaud. A journalist, maybe, but again, how good are they going to be able to convey that feeling across like John Walsh yeah. does it did every single week. Well, that's your point though. Your point is, is brilliant. That's exactly what it is. It's the difference between somebody who is doing it for their career and doing it because they legitimately want to see criminals put away. <coughs> will law enforcement support it? Will will the, the relationship with the media is not a good one. Cops don't really trust the media because it's always about the bad cop. It's always the Rodney King issue. It's not the paralyzed cop, not the hundred and so cops that have been killed in the line of duty. It's always about the brutal cop. Um, will cops work with this show? Will anybody ever call? Because people do not want to get involved. Americans aren't famous for, my God, I'm going to be brought into that courtroom. Somebody's going to kill me. There'll be retaliation. I'll be in a trial forever. No one's going to protect me. He doesn't have any political agenda on he has show whatsoever. A, he, has he has a, a agenda. Justice. He has, just, he has a justice agenda, and it's let's get these kids home. And when people know that you went through the tragedy that he went through, People are going to listen. They're not going to question your motives. You're going to question this guy who just went through the ultimate tragedy, and you're going to make that tragedy even worse by questioning his character? Have fun with that. And watch how the public turns on you. And you wonder what you did wrong? You didn't do anything wrong, though. You've you got to understand that, that these crimes are ra- random crimes. You know that. You know that. And I can see how much you love this boy, and you just want to know. You just want to know. But you, you cannot spend one second of your time as much as it's tearing you apart thinking that you had anything to do with it or you could prevent it you just have to think and focus in on one thing who the real victim is what you're trying to do and that's tony and try to find out you know what happened to him maybe somebody knows somebody because people always brag they always say something they always talk about it somebody knows something 
uh, you know, about what happened to Tony. The frontrunner for the host of the show went to actress Teresa Saldana, an actress that would have roles in Scorsese's films like Raging Bull. Well, it's a, it's, it is a, a rather odd thing to do, but there are a number of reasons why I'm doing it. Um, to get back to the to what happened is that I was attacked about a year and a half mm -hmm. ago uh, because a man who was in Scotland saw me in a film called Defiance, which I starred in opposite Jan Michael Vincent. Saldana would have a stalker from Scotland come to America and hire a private investigator to find her address and phone number. He would then call her mother and pretend to be Martin Scorsese's assistant, saying he needed her to replace another actress in a film that he was currently working on and his mother would assist in her location. The stalker would then find her and viciously stab her ten times in the torso, so aggressively the blade would bend inside her off the bone. Saldana would survive, and after a long recovery, would start the Victim for Victims organization that would help spotlight stalking and the crimes behind it. He saw me in this film, became fixated with me, and traveled to the United States with the only intention being to murder me, and he almost succeeded. His attack on my life resulted in my spending three and a half months in the hospital and becoming a victim of a violent crime. And I went through such horrible, horrible experiences as a crime victim that I felt I needed to form an organization which would send former victims out to meet with more recent victims. At the end of my hospitalization, I met, by coincidence, Miriam Schneider, who is a former school teacher, and uh, she had been shot in the classroom. And we found we had a lot in common, and that's what prompted the idea, really. I somehow realized that although we, we didn't have that much in common as people, that experience of being victimized really gave us an instant rapport. And so with her help and with the help of quite a number of other people, we formed the organization Victims for Victims. It's uh, doing very well in L.A. now. It's almost a year old, and we are eventually going to go national. We're a self-help group, and we help other victims. After long talks about making her the host, one of the producers randomly asked, what about John Walsh? And the room went silent. And they decided that he would be their first choice. They went to John Walsh, offering him a job despite having no television experience whatsoever, and Walsh was very hesitant to commit. And I said no for about six months until um, Barry Diller and a man named Tom Hurwitz and Michael Linder, the original producer, kept saying, look, we've cast actors, we've talked to people, you're the guy we want, and we'll run a hotline. You know, they had done this movie, Adam, about us on NBC, the most watched TV movie of all time, and I had seen what that had done. It had reunited missing children. Grant Tinker greenlighted that project in 1983, landmark television. And I kept saying no, and they said, the first guy we want to profile is David James Roberts, an FBI top 10 serial rapist convicted of 17 rapes, escaped from five life sentences from an Indiana jail, while he was out on parole, how the hell they had let anybody out after 17 rapes? He murdered four people, two of them small children. That changed my whole mind about doing the show. I went, this, I don't know anything about television. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Why do you think John Walsh was hesitant to host America's Most Wanted at first? Because it's going to look like, because some people, they're, they're, they might be thinking, unfortunately, they might be questioning his motives. And again, when you were going through that tragedy, a tragedy that never ends. This heartache never ends. So all of a sudden, you're going to be paid by a network. You're going to be famous. And there are going to be scumbags out there that are going to go, he's just trying to capitalize off his dead child. That's So, yeah, he, he, he wants the focus to be on the justice, not on him. Well, I think that's what it is, though. I don't think he was hesitant because he was afraid of what people would think. I think he was hesitant because he's the trailblazer of this, right? So in his head, TV is not how you get justice. How is TV going to help me? I'm out here making bills. I'm out here doing stuff. Like, I don't know. What is this going to do? But in their head, I mean, I'm sh imagine they pitched it to him as, you know, this is something we're going to do to try and help catch criminals. But when has this ever been done before? You know, I understand the hesitation. My goal in life is to make it so parents don't have to go through what I went through. And now you're asking me to do it on this platform that's never really been done? The show is that pulpit. It is that high profile. I get to catch the uncatchable. I get to put a millions of eyes to someone who has no voice, to someone who was murdered 30 years ago, or to a missing child that nobody's looking for except in that town where that child was missing. So 
it was it was always an energizer. And would it work? You're asking people to do work. You're asking people to watch a show, but find the criminals. Like so, you're saying, "Hey, tune into me on whatever day, Wednesday night, for 30 minutes." The American was one originally was 30 minutes, and say, "Hey, you guys look for this fucking guy." You're taking people out of their comfort zone to be like, "You need to pay attention. This isn't just for fun. This isn't just drama. You need to find this guy." So you're selling, like your your job is now to be on the lookout. But my thing is, though, is giving people a purpose is huge. That show gave a lot of people a purpose. They felt like they were part of something. Anytime you make the, 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 your, your viewing audience feel like they're a part of something, you, you got a winner. The dumbest show in the world is The Masked Singer. And, but the people are a part. The audience is a part of that. You know, like it's, it's all those singing shows, the audience is a part of that. This show... You guys have to do this. You guys have to look for the bad guy. I'm only one person, but you guys are the many. Keep your eyes open and and let's let's bring justice. Let's get bring justice for these kids. The one way you reduce crimes against anybody, the public and children, is cooperation between local, county, state, and federal agencies. Now we have joint fugitive task forces. We have DNA. We have the internet. We have a lot of tools that can make it safer for children. And the fans, uh, me being someone that watched this show from Jesus, uh, the opening all the way through, this was something my dad watched all the time. When you remember the story and they caught the guy, it was almost like you jump out of your chair. They got him. Thank God. You know, you're so excited when it happens. So, And that was the best part about that show is after the show, they would talk about how America's Most Wanted worked we caught this guy. We showed you get this guy two weeks ago. Well, it only took four days. We found him in a hotel in North Dakota, got him, and and, he, and again, now you now you are making your viewing public feel like they are winning. We're on the good side. We're winning now. And any and again, small victories. That's the that that to me is the is the key to happiness. Small victories. I I think that television could do more with cases of missing children, keeping the faces alive, keeping the hope alive from the parents. Um, I never wanted to be a fugitive hunter. I think America's Most Wanted has proved for 24 years that you can get ratings, you can make money, you can be a popular show, and you still can provide a public service. We catch the worst of the worst all over the world. Now, John Walsh would sign on, but the team behind the show had the one big elephant in the room. Will this work? Can television help people and catch criminals and bring them to justice? The big test would come on February 7th, 1988, in a 30-minute episode that would air on only seven stations in North America that Fox currently owned and that would broadcast the new station. And that would be in New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Houston, Chicago, and Dallas. And the first fugitive they would go after would be an FBI top 10 fugitive that raped 17 women and murdered four people, including one one-year-old child, and that would be David James Roberts. The FBI does not have any good history with the media. We don't partner up with the media, but I will have that press conference, and I will never forget it. We announced David James Roberts as the first fugitive. I shot the pilot painfully in Washington, D.C. Nobody told me that the camera with the light on was the one you're supposed to talk to. <laughs> In those days, you had to memorize tons of stuff. You could not go back and edit. I mean, this is prehistoric television. Roberts would escape prison in Indiana in 1986, and the trail on him would go cold. But four days after the airing, in only the limited markets mentioned before, Roberts would be arrested in Staten Island, New York, after a tipster called in to the show, and capture number one was officially in the books and proved that the show works was now proven. It took all day to shoot that half an hour pilot. The show aired on seven O and O's. Rupert is the billionaire media mogul of the world, but in those days he only owned te seven television stations. There were 80 affiliates, most of them UHF. They weren't even VHF. They were operating out of rental storage units with a wire hanger and some of the affiliates. And uh, we caught David James Roberts. We got all these tips. We aired Sunday night. was the only night Johnny Depp was, had a show called 21 Jump Street. I don't know what happened to that guy, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he was a struggling musician on Sunset Boulevard, and he was, that was his first real job. And uh, 
They caught David James Robertson. They caught him on Staten Island. We got so many tips. And guess what this sociopath, rapist, murderer of children was doing? He was running a shelter for the homeless on Staten Island. And his picture had been in the Daily News about two weeks before we aired this show. He had gotten an award from Mayor Koch, the then mayor. Did not know he was presenting an award to an FBI serial killer, the top guy on the FBI 10 most wanted. Limited viewers could turn into this program when it debuted in 1988, and they captured an extremely dangerous fugitive in four days. How do you think John Walsh felt after seeing the program work on this level? Oh, he had to have felt amazing. He had to have felt amazing. He just prevented someone else from getting hurt. He just prevented another Adam Walsh happening to another family. Um, if anything, if anything, that just made him want to go harder. Now he's not just the host. Now he's spearheading this. Now he's probably on the phone with a lot of these people that originally he was just the host of the show. But after that, now I can only imagine he's like, I got to be hands on. I'm a manhunter. I'm a manhunter now. Now, now I'm the guy. I'm coming for you. The show became a hit. I never thought people would call. People went. I, we gave them the ability to call and remain anonymous. That, I knew that was always important. We never offered rewards. There was no money involved. There was just me out there saying, if you have the guts to take this guy off the streets, we don't tap or trace phone calls. No one's ever going to call you. Make the call. Do the right thing. Tell us where these lowlifes are. We'll turn it over to police, but you'll never be dragged into it. I've never broken that bond for 22 years. We've had law enforcement agencies want to subpoena our phone records or tap or where never. And, and now the, those days are gone. They know that this is the bond to trust. And people called by the thousands and still do and go and leave tips on the website. I always believed that people, when they saw a terrible travesty, when they saw a horrible, horrible person do something terrible that chose to be a fugitive, that said, I'm not going to come in and get that trial. I'm not going to take my chances that they were out there. They would do the right thing. And the American public had demonstrated that to me with the passage of the Missing Children's Bill, the creation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in 1984. They overcame all the odds and helped me get things done with Congress, with no lobby, no political action committees. And I was right. The American people saddled up, and now it's the world. You know, we're seen all over the world. I always believe people would do the right things, not as vigilantes, not take the law in their own hands. We've never had an instance where somebody went next door and shot a guy because he was a rapist or a serial killer or a child molester, and they're still doing the right thing. I have great faith in the average citizen. There's never a reason for a tragedy like what happened to John Walsh and his wife, but for there to come good out of something bad like that, and every time he gets to do good for somebody else, it only... It doesn't justify, it doesn't make it better, but it will at least bring solve and a little bit of relief to the open wound of losing that child. This is the sad truth. What happened to Adam Walsh should never, ever, ever happen. But thanks to America's Most Wanted, how many people are safer now as a result of that unbelievably horrific tragedy? If that tragedy didn't happen, how many of these guys would still be out there? And we would be completely clueless. A show like America's Most Wanted, it probably would have taken another 10, 15 years. It would have eventually got made. It would have eventually got made. But getting, having it happen at that time frame, it probably would have taken another 10, 15 years for it to happen. And a host like John Walsh, though. The, the like cold that, resolve. That is the stone. That is the most important thing they decided was someone that wasn't in it for all the perks. He was in it for the right reasons he was in it to be like nobody can feel like this we need to get justice for all these people he was in it for he had the fire he had the anger he had everything to be like i hate these people and then he would sell it he'd be like you get this scumbag off the street now look for this guy lots of people ride motorcycles cops ride motorcycles but the warlocks and other outlaw motorcycle gangs sometimes harbored dangerous criminals, even murderers. Robert Thomas Noss was one of these. Before we share the facts of this case, we must warn you, parental discretion is advised. They roam across the country, a cancer on the American highway. 
the outlaw biker gangs. They may think of themselves as leather-bound road warriors in some high-octane dream. But in reality, they include some of America's most violent criminals, experts in extortion, kidnapping, drugs, murder. They cherish calling themselves the one percenters. And the one percenters is just that, the one percent of those individuals who mo own motorcycles in this country who are outlaw motorcycle enthusiasts. Robert Bobby Noss was vice president of one of these outlaw biker gangs, the Warlocks. In the 1970s, over 150 Warlocks roamed the mid-Atlantic states. The Warlocks are probably the most vicious individuals that I've ever encountered in my 20 years as a state policeman. Noss grew up in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, a hard scrabble neighborhood on the edge of western Philadelphia. At 19, he was already a hardcore biker. The scars of those years are recorded in his tattoos. The most prominent, a large blue parrot on his upper right arm. Robert Noss presents a clear danger to the community, a proven danger. He has killed and has committed other crimes. In fact, has been convicted of uh, robbery, rape, drug trafficking, as well as homicide. And this is the woman he killed, Elizabeth Ann Landy, a petite blonde beauty queen who fell in with the Warlocks after leaving high school. This photo was taken by her parents on December 10th, 1971. The next evening she disappeared after a date with her longtime boyfriend, Bobby Noss. There was an emotion. That's the thing. Like when you look at John Walsh, there's this steel cold resolve. That's how they always made him on television. I'm not saying that's how he is in real life. But uh, on the television show, he had this, this steely resolve, the, the, the lighting on the show, the music on the show. You could, but even as cold, even as, co as, cold as he would come off on television, there was still emotion. You could hear the emotion. Get him off the street. Get this scumbag. I mean, again, dropping names like that, insults yeah. like that. That was huge. That wasn't happening back then you know it wasn't happening back then especially on network television granted it was only on eight stations across the country but again on network television he's taking that chance yeah recently on in pursuit the show that he's doing now he's like get this son of a bitch off the street and you're like i'm looking for him john yeah i'm looking for him yeah, exactly. what motivates you more than that you yeah. know yeah john i got you bro everywhere i'll look for this guy now one last look at the fugitives on tonight's manhunt Dewey Tong Min Win, known to gang members as Tony Playboy, is wanted for a violent home invasion and for two murders. And police say Lance Bedgood shot a 64-year-old Sunday school teacher, then crushed her to death with her car. Next Sunday, the search for a Detroit woman who hired a man to kill her husband. She's been on the run for a decade, but you might help bring her in. I'm John Walsh. Good night from Houston. John Walsh and Rive did something that most of us don't have the strength to do, which is turn personal tragedy into positivity for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to swallow yourself in your own personal tragedy and let it consume you and let it become your life. And then you just spend your days living until you clock out because what's the point, you know, but they didn't do that. There's just, they're different than most people. These people truly have something heroic in them to, to drive them to feel like this, to drive them, to drive him to do the television show, a guy, just a guy who had no aspirations of being famous, who had no aspirations of being a celebrity, who had no aspirations of being on television. Most people don't want to be on television, you know, to be approached with that. And for him to swallow all of his hesitations, all of his pride, all of his own tragedy and stand up every single day and do stuff like that's fucking motivating. Like that makes me want to find people because I know that guy, he's done all this. He went through this. If this guy's standing up and saying, go find that person. Well, I'm going to go find that person. And it keeps his son's memory alive. Mm -hmm. You've been honored by both the FBI, the U.S. Marshals. What does that mean to you? It means a lot to me because law enforcement are my partners. I started out in an adversarial way. Only in America could you hate and be mad at the FBI and wind up catching 17 of their top 10 and being FBI Man of the Year and being honored by the FBI. That's what's great about America. You can, you can come to terms and you can bury those hatchets. Those honors from law enforcement are, 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 are wonderful. They sort of validate that partnership. I mean, 140 cops died in the line of duty last year. So I have great respect 
for law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So those, those awards are very, very special to me because I think they look at me as not somebody in the media, but somebody as a trusted partner, somebody that'll go that extra mile with them to get justice. And law enforcement agencies were very skeptical on this show. They were like, eh, it's a waste of time. It's just fodder. But the concept of the show, after the capture of Roberts, they changed their tune. And they started to show the show support and submit cases to the program. By the summer of 1988, Fox Network would go nationwide. And America's Most Wanted would be considered the next first official hit show. The premise of watch television catch criminals was promoted and proven to the masses. Last Sunday night, the Jacksons were in Bossier City, Louisiana, registered at the Beacon Manor Motel under the name Henderson. At 1.30 yesterday morning, Bossier City police and U.S. Marshals arrested Jackson, who was then using the identity of his dead brother. Deborah Jackson claimed to be Deborah Henderson, but neither had IDs to back up their aliases. I honestly believe that from the look on both their faces and from talking with them, they were glad it was over. It's been a long time, and it's time for it to end, and I think they're glad. A Bossier City woman recognized Douglas Jackson last Thursday and called police, triggering a stakeout at the motel. The Jacksons were packing up to leave. And thanks to an Illinois viewer, accused killer Paul Boland was captured in near record time. By 1989, the show would hit another milestone and get its first international capture with a fugitive that fled to Nova Scotia, showing its net is now global. The power of television for justice and good is being proven, and no tool had been this effective for cases that have gone cold in the history of law enforcement. Do you think the show, if it wasn't a hit television show with ratings, despite the good it was doing and accomplishing, would have been canceled i would hope it wouldn't get canceled that's but that's the thing it's like again this is fox we're talking about they're all about the money even in the early incantations of the of the station they were all about getting that money hand over fist if it wasn't getting ratings they probably would have did the evil thing and canceled that show fortunately for them fortunately for america and john walsh and revey the show was a hit and there were other people out there that were just as angry as John Walsh, that may not have ever experienced that tragedy, but they just wanted to make sure that their streets were safe for their children. That's what I'm getting at. You get a guy like John Walsh who went through that tragedy, and it resonates. It grabs. It shakes people to their core. That's why people tuned in, and because they tuned in, thank God it lasted. What would you say is your most significant accomplishment? One top-of-the-heap list. The beautiful children I've been blessed to have, and the wonderful wife who stuck with me through all this stuff. I mean, my father used to say, having children is the toughest job in the world, but it's the best job in the world. And uh, I've been blessed with four beautiful children and a wife I'm still married to after 40 years. I think that's very impressive with all that you've done for society that it comes back to the, the family unit, John, doesn't it's, it? It's, it's a blessing. It's, it, they're gifts. Children are gifts. That's why I think most people identify with me with the fact that you can't imagine how anybody could hurt children. But people hurt children all over the world. They don't realize what a treasure and a gift they really are and what a responsibility. It is the hardest job and it is the most rewarding job. So all those other things are awards and plaques and you know they're all nice but to look at these children and say that's the best job I've done and a reflection of yourself. It was guaranteed to be a hit for that reason, though, because this is also culturally a time when the television was the center of our culture. I wouldn't even say guaranteed, though, because, again, this was something that never was shown. I think it's a, I think it, it's a formula. It's a guarantee that it was going to be a hit because this is a time culturally when we our lives revolved around our television. We clocked out of work. We came home. We had we had dinner. We sat down in front of the TV with our family and you watched your programs. You watched the same shows every week. You watched them all the time. You're sitting there every week and you're watching it. And then you as a family see this family man who lost part of his family talking about other people losing their family and how you can help catch them. I mean, I feel like that's pretty appointment viewing though. Like to bring Jocelyn's point, that was, that was America at that time, but we chose who we listened to and we all wanted to listen to John Walsh. We all wanted to be like, Hey, tell me what you got. 
And then, like I said, there was a motivation factor. It was all the show worked and survived directly because of him. Well, his tragedy, his want. We wanted to somehow, as viewers, help him. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. We wanted to be like, no, 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 we got this. We, like I said, he, we were part of his team because of what he went through. Well, it's the same thing when you're talking about rehab. Like, I'm not going to listen to somebody talk about heroin addiction who's never been addicted to heroin. John Walsh had a horrible tragedy, and he's trying to prevent tragedies. If anybody knows just how despicable something like that is to a family, to the people that were living in Hollywood, Florida, to, to, and then the people that were just in, in Florida in general, I mean, it's like any time a tragedy like that strikes something that's close to home, it can affect, it has a ripple effect that sometimes can never stop. And something that I do want to bring up is that this the case of Adam Walsh was not solved at this time. It took 27 years for them finally to close that case and say, hey, Otis Tool did this. At this time, because of the, the work that was not done correctly to follow the leads and all that stuff with the Adam Walsh case, this was a cold case. They were never going to find that. His son's severed head was still sitting in a, in a, in a room. He couldn't even bury his kid during this time. Because they never had him. So while we're watching this, we know that the killer of Adam Walsh is still out there. It's not Saul. We'll be right back with more from Houston. But first, this week's Missing Child Alert. Have you seen this child? Amy Mahalovic vanished after school in Bay Village, Ohio, October 27th. Amy stands 4'10", weighs 90 pounds, and has blonde hair with brown eyes. Call now if you've seen her. This is why another reason to my point of why I think that this was a guaranteed hit is because this is also a time in our country where police still had a lot of bravado. It was, a lot, it was about being the one to solve it. They didn't communicate with each other. Some of the biggest reasons that people, cases went unsolved, murderers went free, rapists and murderers, serial killed and murdered all up and up the, down the coasts and highways of our country during this time is because precincts and law enforcement didn't communicate with each other because they wanted the case. They wanted the solve. They wanted the, the slam dunk. This circumvented that. Yeah, it was a dick measuring contest. Th this circumvented that. This, yeah, this, when it's on TV, it's like, hey, we're, we're, you just, we yeah, got Sorry, you. the public's yeah. got this, guys. We yeah. got this. Yes. Yeah. I, I found a girl uh, sex trafficked in Seattle, 15-year-old girl, was an MS-13. They sex trafficked girls, that horrible Nicaraguan gangbangers. He ordered her murder from the from jail because the defense attorney found out what halfway house she was in and the cops didn't protect her so they killed the witness so so i know that people want to do the right thing i figured that out way back trying to solve adam's case asking people for help if you show them how to do it and you protect them and i have hotline operators that are better than any cop in the country they know how to weed through the bullshit. they know when they're they're well trained Critics would come out and attack the show for the storytelling hypothesis that would be presented on the crimes. Although the show would be focused always on the loss of the victims and the people left behind, many saw it as portraying one side of the story. Defense attorneys would use the show in many cases and on very few rare occasions, trials had to be moved because the entire county would have seen the program and be swayed by the show's portrayal. I, I would say the average person who watches ID, who we would call one of our ID addicts, mm -hmm. really understand investigative tools. And Double-edged sword. Yeah. Much more sophisticated, but shows like NCIS and everything have compromised juries so badly and prosecutors have lost their guts because now that jury will sit there or that prosecutor will say, do we have DNA? Do we have a smoking gun? Do we have, you are a prosecutor, do we have video? And the juries will go, where is that? 90% of cases are still on circumstantial evidence. So you've got DAs that are worrying about their track record. They're up for election. They'll tell cops, I can't do this case because there's no DNA. And these juries expect it. They expect DNA. They think they're all amateur sleuths. sleuths. And that, it's a double-edged sword. But they have gotten more sophisticated. And I have a huge following in, 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 on Facebook. The first time we put up a website on America's Most Wanted when the Internet came to be, I caught 40 guys that year. 
all over the country and all over the world. I caught guys in 45 countries. So I, I believe in the public that 99% of the people in the world are just like us. They want to feed their families, get their kids a better college, better education than they had. And there's a huge, evil, manipulative population out there. So I say to people, trust me, and we'll go find that dirtbag. Do these critics have a point on the profile of the show, giving audiences a guilty before proven innocent vibe, or is this just a cheap defense tactic for criminals? Is it is it critics or is it scumbag defense attorneys that are grasping at any type of a straw they can to get their client off? Well, I will defend defense attorneys. Def- not all defense attorneys are scumbags. Defense attorneys are also heroes in that they're out there defending constitutional rights. I'm not talking about people. my cousin Vinny. I'm talking about he was a defense attorney. But I think that as far as like criticizing it, there is a point there because as far as our legal system goes, there are rules and you have to operate within those rules to get justice. And that's the way it works. And when it comes to public opinion, they do have to move trials. They do have to source different jurors. They do have to do all these things because if it is a trial and you are on trial, it is not a fair and just trial. If every single person on there has been Googling you and looking you up and well, this was a different time, but still has been, you know, reading every article about you, watching you on TV, doing all these things. Do I believe that that is a necessary evil sometimes to get to the people yes fucking blow their name up get them get them there's other evidence that we can get them on it does make the case more difficult for prosecutors it does give defense attorneys holes they can blow into it but as far as them criticizing the show i think defense attorneys who were criticizing the show were only criticizing it because they're good defense attorneys that's what i'm getting at because they were saying look like i can't defend this guy (laughs) because you basically and to, to the point of the show, though, these people are already criminals. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. It's yeah. like, my thing is, though, is like, if the problem is because they have to move the case from one county to another, who gives a fuck? It's, le- it's, the, le- it's the way our justice system That's, works. I'm just saying. It's the scripting. Them. It's the actress portrayal of the yes. criminal. The, all these factors from yeah. a viewer perspective are going to be like, that guy was fucking awful. So it's like people would look at this and be like, all right, TV is a strong format, but the reenactments of it can, I'm, in a lot of ways, be criticized. Our- Robert Thomas Noss Jr. is 35 years old. He's five foot nine and weighs about 190 pounds. He's got brown hair and eyes and several tattoos. We've already shown you the blue parrot tattoo on his right bicep. He also has a tattoo of three skulls on his right forearm a girl in a swastika on his left forearm, and on his upper left arm, a skull with a dagger and the phrase, born to lose. If you know something about Robert Noss or where he might be, call our toll-free hotline, 1-800-CRIME-88. Your tips will immediately be turned over to the U.S. Marshal Service. Our justice system is predicated on the mechanics of a jury of our peers who will listen to both sides of a story. You cannot listen to both sides of a story if you've come in with one side already. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I get that. But my point is, how much more money is it going to cost to move this guy from one county down the street a to lot, another? Actually. Well, then, uh, but it's worth it. It it's is. Worth I it. agree with you. I agree with you. But there is a point. There is a point here in that there, this is the thing in our world, and I talk about this a lot. I've probably said this a million times, is that this is a problem in our world today. People forget that things that have good effects also have bad effects. Everything that you do, everything in life has good consequences and bad consequences. One of the bad consequences of America's Most Wanted is that it makes it difficult for defense attorneys to defend their clients in places where that client, you know, may be well-known due to the show. Right, I understand that. But what America's Most Wanted did was help apprehend a bunch of criminals who already had convictions, who weren't even about to go on trial, who just were out there doing what they're doing, just escaping, or, you know, like um, David James Roberts and stuff like that. So it's not even about that. So is it a is it is it a possible infringement on the fair trial and, and how that happens? Yes. But is it a great thing? Yes. <laughs> And I had this opportunity to have millions of people, and I would say on the show, it's my bully pulpit, and I don't try to hide that. Hide that. When something is opposed, I tell the public, I say, this is a good piece of legislation. Like you said, doesn't matter what side of the aisle. It's not right, left. It's, it's bipartisan. It's for the people. And it was my pulpit, and it energized me. It still energizes me. You know, I mean, it was a wonderful experience to go to the White House yesterday. And that's the thing is that, like, the parameters of what television is. Television is like, you need to get the show out in a week. 
you have a pressure, you have money, you have all these things behind there because you have to air a program. What the criticism is, is that like, are they cutting corners at any moment to get that script out, to shoot those actors to do that, to do all that? Because you, regardless of the justice system, like if, if you have to get a show out there and you're not prepared, you're rushing it. And by rushing it, what are you doing in the presentation? That's the fear. And you're, total, and you're totally right. But again, if you're one of these people, you're like, oh, okay, then why was he on the run for three weeks and he just grew himself a fucking beard and he was found in some shack in the middle of the woods? Like, this guy already looks... I mean, he's not doing himself any favors by acting that way as well, by being on the run. If he's innocent, why didn't he, why didn't he just stick around and explain his story? But well, instead, he runs. We, but our justice system is imperfect and innocent people do go to jail. And we have seen that time and time again now, especially now with the Innocence Project and people like that coming about and fighting to get those people out of jail and to, and to reverse these convictions is that, you know, there are going to be people who will criticize it with good hearts because here's the thing is if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, there was that case of that guy who was at a fucking baseball game. And because somebody pointed to him and said he murdered somebody, he went to jail. He went to jail. And the only reason he got out of jail is because they were filming a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode and they got background footage and saw him during the time of the murder. But he would have been put to death, you know? Yeah. If, if, so there, there is things that happen in our justice system that aren't fair. And these things, these checks and balances are in place. And there is, again, I will continue to defend the fact that the show is valid. It should have been on. It still should be on. I'm glad he's still doing shit. I'm glad that this is still part of it. But one of the negative consequences of, of it is, is that television as a form of justice doesn't vibe with our justice system because our justice system was created 250 years ago. And I have ridden with cops for years and years and years. And that poorly trained, underpaid, overworked cop has to make a decision in 30 seconds. Do I shoot and maybe I get home tonight to see my family? Or does that 220 pound, 16 year old teenager that sorta has faking a gun, reaching for something, do I kill him and then find out he's unarmed and my career is ruined and I get sued? Okay. There have been bad shootings. And I say to every sheriff and chief of police, if it's a bad shooting, then man up and talk about it. Get it investigated. Don't bury it. Be open. Be forthcoming. Be transparent. Talk to the media and say, I will get to the bottom of this, okay? I will find out if that guy was armed. We'll find that out. We'll do it right away and we'll be transparent. And I sincerely believe that before it gets better, it might get worse, but the answer is better training of cops. They're trained for three months. Well, how long does it take to train a doctor before he cuts open your stomach? A cop goes to police academy for three months and then he has a gun and he can open your stomach up with a bullet and kill you? The format from the show would go from 30 minutes to 60 minutes because the show being a hit and John Walsh would become the perfect host. He would call criminals scumbags, pieces of garbage, and anything you can to represent someone in a negative light after the crime they committed. Here are some successes from the show and the features they captured directly from America's Most Wanted Callers. Louisiana murderer suspect Robert Wayne Fisher was captured in 33 minutes after he was profiled on the show. Our first story tonight is going to make your blood boil. Luis Frias has done everything he possibly can to climb to the top of my own personal Most Wanted list. I've covered thousands of fugitives in 25 years, and none of them is more despicable than a man who beats a woman or a child he claims to love. Convicted Philadelphia murderer Joseph Kindler, who escaped from death row, was arrested in New Brunswick, Canada, the show's first international capture, and that was in 1988. The show is responsible for capture of New Jersey mass murderer John Email List, who was at large for 18 years prior to him getting aired in 1989. Utah fugitive Stephen Ray Allen was convicted of murder and captured in Montana. Hawaii murder suspect Segundo Matias became the show's 100th captured with his arrest in Los Angeles by 1990. So 100 different captures by 1990. That's just three years of airing this show. Escaped Pennsylvania murderer Robert Nassau Jr., a U.S. Marshal's top 15 fugitive, was arrested in Luna Pier, Michigan, having been at large for seven years and on the program Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, almost every one of our 
uh, interviews individuals uh, we talked to during this investigation have indicated NOS had a problem, a love-hate uh, psychological problem with most women that he dealt with. Uh, he would love them one moment and beat them the next. Any news on the escape? Uh, yes, the, the escape, of course, since the capture of his co-conspirator during the escape, we've learned that the Thompsons uh, are not really the Thompsons. They were a couple associated with North who helped him affect the escape. The show's success would also help capture 11 FBI top 10 fugitives by 1996, more than one FBI agent or concerted effort by the team that you would give credit to. And this would include Jack Darrell Farmer, who was arrested in Florida on June of 1988, and he was recognized by a co-worker who called into the show's tip line. Stephen Ray Stout, FBI agents found him in Mississippi. Stout strangled and stabbed at his former mother-in-law and one of her daughters. Stanley Fazan, he was caught in Detroit, Michigan in 1988. Fazan was being sought for the murder of a man whose girlfriend he'd earlier beaten with a tire iron. Pedro Luis Estrada, who was caught in 1989 for three counts of homicide in New York City. Lee Nell Carter, he was caught after a shooting spree that left the men injured and one woman dead in Detroit. Wardell David Ford, Ford was being sought by the FBI and Armando Garcia, who was caught for multiple counts of murder and drug trafficking in 1994. Because we, we, yeah. you know, we had some tough run-ins over the years. Mm -hmm. I, he had to grow up with the bodyguards and death threats, and the FBI killed two different guys that tried to kill me over the years. So, and, and, and But I believe that you fight back. I mean, it took 27 years to solve my little boy's murder. Right. And I believe you fight back. Mm -hmm. I believe you just say, hey, to the public, because 98% of people I met in the world are good. Mm -hmm. I go in the hood all the time, and the people come out and cheer me and go, John, we hate these bastards. They're in here. You know, Chicago, kids come home from college and get killed in drive-bys and 700 murders It's it, it, in no clearance rate. A kid will get murdered with 400 witnesses, and no one will have the no guts. I hate this stop-snitching bullshit. These people... Are, are out there killing people. Chicago, 99% of the murders are African-American kids under 18 years old. It's mm. kids killing kids. And if you know of a kid who killed five kids, you better. You can drop a dime. All you got to do, call me. We don't tap phones. We don't trace phones. I have the bond of trust with the public. I've met hundreds of Chicago parents of murdered children. The thing that sort of puts that past you and helps you, no closure, you always be the parent of a murdered child, mm -hmm. but helps you put that end to that chapter of your life is when the dirtbag who did it has to pay for it. By 1996, Fox, due to high production costs, would decide to cancel America's Most Wanted. But the world would not accept it, and Fox would have a huge backlash from fans and have to reconsider their decision almost immediately. What a great city Chicago is. Yeah. How can they have 600 murders in a year and only solve 28% of them? That's it's bullshit. Crazy. It's wrong. It's just, it's, it's insane. And this gun culture, that guy in Las Vegas was able to buy 14 automatic weapons, super clips, bump stocks. I hunt. I own guns. I own shotguns and pistols. Nobody needs these assault rifles. So in 10 minutes that it took the SWAT team to get there, he murdered 68 people and shot 800 other people in 10 minutes because he had all these automatic weapons. weapons. Every other country in the world, first world country, has extensive background checks. 80% of those 27 school shootings were very disturbed kids that people knew who they were. They knew that they couldn't function. That kid in Parkland down there was kicked out of that school three mm -hmm. times. How the hell can these kids get guns? Because the NRA's up there in Washington scaring the living hell out of every congressman up there and say, you vote for a gun. They promised those Sandy Hook parents of those 26 six-year-old kids that were murdered mm -hmm. by that psycho boy that they were going to pass stricter gun control every other country has a psychological background check you wait two weeks you have to prove that you know how to hold that use that gun mm -hmm. not leave it in your nightstand for your three-year-old grandson to shoot somebody or himself with it mm -hmm. five kids a week in this country die from gun accidents and they held Congress, they, they hold, con they're a gun manufacturing rep funded by the gun companies, and they hold Congress 
hostage. So they'll say, you're going to vote for gun control. I'm going to run against you. I'm going to put $5 million into your district, put up some guy against you, and you're going to lose your seat. So you know what? They didn't vote. They promised those parents there were five bills before Congress of stricter gun control, better background checks. Eighty percent of Americans want better background checks. Mm -hmm. They don't want a sociopath to get a gun, to go to a gun show. You can get a gun if you're not a convicted felon. You can be a sociopath and go get a gun. But you know what those bills happen? They never even got to committee. They never even got, forget about voted on the floor. They never had hearings about those five gun control laws. Wow. So, you know. We, we're the richest, most powerful country and the freest, but we are the most violent first world country on this planet. Follow my co-host, Brandon Gooch Hahn, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at your buddy Gooch, Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp, and Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Sylvia. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to a Fan and on Instagram at Rise to a Fan Official. And make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks Podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover, rise to offend at gmail.com. Discover the work and career of John Walsh from his five nonfiction books, including Tears of Rage, the changes he made in legislation to protect children in America, including the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, and his television programs in the past, including America's Most Wanted, The Hunt with John Walsh, and his current show, In Pursuit with his son Callahan, on the Investigation Discovery Channel. All content used on this show is copyrighted, by its owners. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask from you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Next week, we will do part three of three on John Walsh. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO Podcast, signing off.